CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind, the final one of uh, this week. Uh, It's Friday, November 19th, and I'm very happy to have all of you with us. Before I introduce the panel, uh, I want to just say a couple things about our show yesterday, which some of you heard. Um, Our our guest uh, was William Cope Moyers, the son of uh, uh, journalist and presidential advisor Bill Moyers, William Cope Moyers uh, tells a harrowing story about the fact that he was addicted to every drug imaginable. He was an alcoholic. Um, His is a story of addiction and recovery, and his recovery actually began, as he talked to us about yesterday, when he was pulled out of a crack house where he'd spent a few days Uh, away from his wife, his two small children who lived in Morningside with him. He was pulled out of the crack house and taken to recovery at Ridgeview, which turned his life around. Uh, Moyers now works for Hazel and Betty Ford and is basically an evangelist for recovery. And and if you didn't listen to the show, first of all, those of you who did and who sent me notes about it, thank you. His story is incredibly powerful and meaningful. Um, And so it's available on our podcast or on our website. But the reason I'm mentioning it to you to start the show today is uh, William contacted me last night to say that in the first hour after our show went off the air, seven people listening to the show contacted him and said, please help me. If if you're out there listening to the show, and, and what he did then, of course, is connect those people with the right folks. To, to begin a process that those people may want to go through. If you're out there, if you listened, and if you're struggling with addictions uh, that you want to deal with, um, uh, William Cope Moyers at Hazel and Betty Ford will be more than happy to connect you with the right people for that. So I just wanted to say that um, before we move forward with the show today. Okay, let's do that now. There is an awful lot of political news to talk about, and we've got a good panel to do it. Friday, political uh, reporter and columnist Patricia Murphy for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is here. You read her on Wednesdays and Sunday, her political insider column. And, of course, she oversees the jolt, the uh, daily summary of political news that you read at AJC.com. How are you doing, Patricia? I'm doing great, Bill. How are you? Fine, fine. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. Stephen Fowler is here as well. He, of course, political reporter for GPB News. Stephen, you've been spending a good amount of time downtown under the Gold Dome covering the reapportionment session, and I, I appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Of course. It started when the frost was on the pumpkin, and I think that pumpkin's starting to get a little moldy. (laughs) You know, Patricia Murphy, ever since, I mean, we're now through that session, but David Ralston really put that phrase on the map when he told us on this show, when you asked him months and months ago when the special session would start, he said, not till the frost is on the pumpkin. Well, (laughs) it's come and gone, Patricia. Yes, well, I had to ask him a follow-up question later. I'm like, so when does when exactly is the frost on the pumpkin, for those of us who don't know? Because <laughs> I actually did not know what he was talking about. It sounded cold, but I wasn't quite sure. So he told me, and he, he was right on time, just like that frost yeah. in Blue Ridge. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the session's about to come to an end. Uh, Representative Terry Anulowitz, uh, Democrat uh, who represents Smyrna and uh, surrounding areas has been part of it. Um, we're glad to have you here today, Terry. Are, has it been an exhausting couple of weeks for you? It has been. It, it's been almost hurry up and wait. It has been exhausting, but it's also been a lot of testing of patience, especially waiting for the congressional maps, which we finally got to see. Uh, later, you know, this week, which is which is good. And now the big question is, when do we get to go home? I have uh, some colleagues who are trying to figure out how how our schedule here at the you know to finish up these maps comports with when they need to take their turkey out to the frost. <laughs> Speaking of frost, but <laughs> it is, 
It has been, yes, it has been a couple of weeks, and I am delighted that I do still represent Smyrna and surrounding areas. Yeah, okay, so your district has maintained most of its shape, is what you're saying. Pretty, I'm still in Cobb County. I still have a lot of Smyrna. I still have a little bit of Marietta. I've got the Braves, and I've got the Bombers over at, um, at, at Dobbins Air Force Base. So <laughs> okay. those are all good Thanks. things. Eric Tannenblatt is with us. Um, you've heard Eric on the show many times. He has been a longtime Republican. I always say insider, Eric, because more than anything else, that's truly what you are. You've been advisor, a fundraiser in Republican politics, working with everybody from the Bush family, uh, presidential uh, 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 candidates and presidencies from George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. You worked with Mitt Romney on his campaign for uh, president, you were a uh, you were uh, the uh, uh, head of um, I, I'm, I'm blocking the words now, but you worked for Sonny Perdue as chief of staff. That's the that's the phrase I was looking for in his first term. So you've been all over the place in Republican Party politics, uh, but you are also also uh, a partner at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Hi, Eric. Glad to be here. You make me sound very old. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not old. We know that you're, you're not old. All right, let's get right to it. Um, let's start with the congressional maps uh, because um, they have pretty much been finalized by the Republican leadership, and I, I assume they're going to be voted on today, Patricia. And, and one of the headlines of that uh, reapportionment for Congress is that Republicans have uh, created a map that gives them probably one more seat than they have right now. You wrote about that in your column uh, for Sunday, which is already posted. You say this, Republicans have lost the last two elections in the 6th Congressional District to U.S. Representative Lucy McBath. But on Wednesday of this week, they absolutely clobbered her in the redistricting process carving out the most liberal portions of her Democratic-leaning suburban Atlanta district and replacing them with some of the most conservative voters in the state. And I think that is the headline of the congressional map, don't you? I, I do. I really do. Um, I, I will say for the state legislative maps, I think the Republicans um, were very restrained, um, uh, carving out some Democratic-leaning seats that will give Democrats opportunities in uh, more densely populated areas, um, and uh, in both the State House and the State Senate. In the congressional maps, um, we saw uh, really the opposite direction, carving out a uh, very Republican-leaning district in the 6th District. It's going from um, an area that voted for uh, Joe Biden by 12 points to one that uh, voted for Donald Trump by 15 points. So just a huge partisan swing. Um, I went up to uh, Dawson County yesterday to meet some of the new voters who might be voting in that uh, future election if Lucy McBath were to run. Um, and they've really given her a, a difficult hand. They carved out... Um, uh, Brookhaven, uh, Dunwoody, other por portions of DeKalb County, and uh, added in some much more conservative areas um, and uh, making it much easier for a Republican to pick up that district um, in the future. And that, that's, uh, that's how I read it. Others can weigh in. Um, I do want to talk about the legislative maps in a minute, but let's continue with this congressional theme for a few more minutes. Um, Stephen, this becomes an interesting uh, dilemma for Lucy McBath, uh, but it also, in a strange way, has an impact on, on the 7th District. So Carolyn Bordeaux, the Democrat who's now the congresswoman in the 7th District, they've made her map, uh, her district, even more Democratic. They've confined it to Gwinnett County. They've compacted that district. But there are, here are some of the questions that I know people are talking about, and I'd love for you to weigh in. What does Lucy McMath do? Does she consider going over and running against Carolyn Bordeaux in the 7th? Does she consider a different office entirely? And if the, if the 7th is now firmly Democratic, does that encourage other Democrats who previously had been less willing than Carolyn Bordeaux was to try to win a Democratic seat there for them to jump in? So these are all the permutations coming out of the way the map has been drawn, right? 
Well, yeah, in the immediate aftermath of this map being released, some of Lucy McBath's allies quickly pointed out a number of things that might make Carolyn Bordeaux vulnerable to a primary challenge from someone, maybe somebody whose name rhymes with Lucy McBath. Uh, you know, Carolyn Bordeaux uh, won her primary last year, uh, not with a commanding, resounding victory, but I believe it was, uh, I think, with 53 percent of the vote. I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, but the district, <clears throat> excuse me, the district, uh, it is mostly Gwinnett County and also part of Johns Creek would be a very different primary electorate. And especially if you have two Democratic uh, members of Congress running against each other. But, you know, McBath has blazed a trail as a strong congressional candidate around issues like gun violence. And given the national environment for Democrats running and really given the slate of Democratic challengers that have already come in statewide seats so far, there's not really a place for her there unless she wanted to run for governor if Stacey Abrams didn't run. So it wouldn't surprise me if she does end up running in that new 7th district because, you know, you don't have to live in the district that you seek to represent. And the way Republicans drew the map, neither McBath nor Bordeaux technically live in that 7th district. Yeah, yeah. Which, of course, a, a member of Congress is not, or or a candidate for Congress does not have to do. Different from legislative districts. Uh, Terry, did um, Republicans draw a fair congressional map? I don't think so. I don't think it's a map that is representative of how Georgia's population has changed. You know, we are very much a purple state, very much a fifty-fifty state. This map does not represent that reality, and I think you're right. You know. If these maps are to pass, if these districts are drawn the way they do in Patricia's column, she noted, you know, the pendulum can only stay on one side of things for so long, and then it's going to swing back, that pendulum of power. And I and I, I think that if the GOP wants to try to stave that reality off for a little while, they may do so with these maps, but I don't think they're fair maps, and I don't think that they're going to have the long-term results that they hope to have. Eric? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect Terry to think otherwise. Um, look, I mean, this is a process that happens every 10 years, and this, you know, elections have consequences, and the Republicans are in the majority, and they're going to control this. And I think Patricia noted it in her column, and people have compared it to what happened with Newt Gingrich in the, in the 90s and what Tom Murphy did. In fact, I think that year, if I remember correctly, there were candidates already lined up to run in that district, and then Newt decided to move to a new district, and those, some of those candidates got out. So this is not something that we haven't seen before. And I, I think the fact that the state legislative districts probably uh, did not come across as being as partisan as, as you're talking about the congressional district is a reflection on national politics and what we're seeing in Washington and how polarized it is. I mean, the, the majority in the Senate obviously is, is slimmer than in the House, but the House Republicans are in the minority. And this is an off-year election, and I think the Republicans feel pretty confident that they're going to retake the House, and this is just part of it. So I, I'm not surprised by it. And look, if the, dem the demographics are going to continue to change, and 10 years from now, we'll probably have a different-looking map. So, um, all right, so the 6th and the 7th the the are the districts that have seen the most dramatic change. Um, Stephen, it's interesting to look down at the second district where Sanford Bishop has held that seat for three decades uh, and is pretty well uh, a pretty easy uh, uh, candidate for re-election in most uh, uh, elections. Um, it looks like his district has been preserved for him, but it does have a more Republican uh, flavor to it, doesn't it? Well, uh, actually, the partisan breakdown looks to be about the same as it was before, but who those voters are a little bit different. Uh, Sanford Bishop's district now dips into Warner Robins and includes the base there. Uh, it takes out some counties in middle Georgia. It adds a county, Thomas County, down there. But it's drawn in such a way that on the surface, it looks like he's mostly kept the same. But if you dig a little deeper, in a world where Sanford Bishop does not run for re-election, it does give Republicans the opportunity to have a bit more of a chance and a competitive seat while still preserving the majority-minority community in the Black Belt in southwest Georgia. 
Yeah, a couple of other changes that I think are noteworthy. Um, in Marjorie Taylor's Green District, that has been brought down to include just a bit of Cobb County. That moderates that seat a, a little bit, you know, just a little bit. And so it'll still be, uh, you know, Trump country, but it is uh, just a little bit less um, totally, totally uh, uh, Trump. I think it'll uh, trim her in just a tiny bit. And then if you look carefully at what happened over in the ninth District, um, Representative Andrew Clyde has been drawn out of that district. And although, um, as Stephen said, they can run from wherever they want to um, because there's no law requiring them to have a residency requirement the, re the way there is for those state legislative races, I think it was just a little bit of a um, just a little bit of a kick on on Andrew Clyde, and he's been pumped into that tenth uh, district, which already has I think about eight Republicans already running, inclu including several um, very high profile, and Timothy Barr, who's already gotten the endorsement of Congressman Jody High. So that puts uh, Clyde in just a little bit of an, of an unusual situation. Eric. Yeah, I just I just wanted to add too that you know because of how short a time frame we have with qualifying being in March and primaries being in um, in, in the spring, uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of time for new faces to emerge. So I think you got to look at the faces that are already out there, and those are probably the ones you're going to see. You know whether they're competing against each other. So I, I think we we know who the players are. It's just you know where they're going to play is what we need to watch. You know, I to that point, though, I will say another interesting thing in talking to some Republican strategists looking at the new contours of the 6th district, it's all of Forsyth County, all of Dawson County, and a big part of Cherokee County. None of the current candidates that are running are from that neck of the woods. So you could see somebody, somebody who can self-fund from Forsyth County come in and have a lot better time in the primary than, say, a Jake Evans or a Megan Hansen that may still be running there. And that changes the contour of that seat drastically as well. Jake Evans and Megan Hansen being two Republicans who have uh, declared themselves for uh, the 6th District congressional seat. Terry? Yeah, I wanted to comment on, on, on two things. One is that I think it's, you know, we mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene being drawn into Cobb County. There are a lot of folks in Cobb County. She's in sort of southwestern Cobb County, Austell, Powder Springs. That is a very strongly Democratic area. People in Cobb County are really unhappy. I, I said on Twitter last night, you know, Cobb County is not buying what Marjorie Keller Green is selling. And I actually don't think that having that sort of Democratic stronghold in that in that 14th district is going to temper her at all. I don't think anything will temper her at all, because I ultimately don't think it's going to change the numbers. And, you know, we're not going to have, I doubt, some candidate from Cobb County decide that they're going to go in and, and take that district. I think that I think I think I don't think they, they could draw her out. You know, it's it's frustrating. It's frustrating that Cobb has been dragged into this to this CD14 drama. I wish we could have been kept out of it. Uh, and with regards to, to Lucy McBath, I just feel it's important to emphasize she really should not be underestimated. You know, she started off in politics wanting to run for a House seat in Cobb County. She decided the week of qualifying she was going to run for that congressional seat instead. She ran for that seat. She won that seat. She is motivated in a way that I think a lot of members of Congress aren't. She has been through the unimaginable. She has taken that tragedy and has used that to motivate her. And I think it'd be, it, I think it's, it's not good to underestimate how motivated and how formidable she is. Yeah, I agree that Lucy McBath is really not going anywhere. Um, she tweeted out very quickly after the maps came out that she, her resolve is only been strengthened. Um, we've heard from McBath allies that she, her goal is to focus on gun safety legislation at the federal level. And that's where she wants to be. That's where she thinks she can have the most impact. So I think she'll look for the place and the role where she can have that impact. Um, and even that new sixth district, if you drive up to Dawson County, that, that has changed drastically even in the last 10 years. Um, there is development that's creeping northward um, from uh, from Forsyth County and uh, from Cherokee County. It's all just kind of creeping upward. And so this district uh, looks one way today, and it will look different in 10 years from now. And so to Eric's point, um, this is about, I think, preserving majorities uh, for a little longer. Um, what that's going to look like is going to be really, really different. That is a very quickly changing dynamic part of the state.
Yeah, one one other point I want to make, and it'd be interesting to watch, and you've seen this over the years, you know, because uh, President Biden is in office and has control over the executive branch of government, are there going to be opportunities for some of these uh, current members of Congress to go serve in his administration as a way to not have a primary in some of these districts? Yeah. Okay. So I want to go back because you all have had a lot of really interesting things to say, but I want to take this back, Patricia, to your comments about Andrew Clyde being drawn out of the district and Marjorie Taylor Greene's district being reshaped a bit as well. As you guys have already said, you know, here Clyde and Greene are, I think, arguably the most outspoken uh, far right members of the Georgia congressional delegation. So here's my question. Patricia, it is almost impossible, as you all have said, to draw Marjorie Taylor Greene a district that she's not going to probably be able to win. But what about Andrew Clyde? Are they, is, is the sense, Patricia, and then and then maybe you have some thoughts about this, Terry, based on what you're hearing in the halls, are, are the Republicans in power downtown trying to, you know, to lessen Andrew Clyde's ability to to continue in this role as this outspoken right winger. Well, so I think the only way to know that is if you were in the room where it happened, and if you are, um, if you pull up a chair and inside the brains of inside of a few of these men in charge, um, Andrew Clyde does that. You don't hear his name around the Capitol. He is not doesn't have a huge laundry list of allies and supporters down there. Um, I do hear Doug Collins' name quite a bit. I do hear people saying, maybe Doug Collins will run. Again, that is 100% speculation, but that is capital location speculation. I can at least tell you that. Um, So I don't know. I just do think it was noteworthy that um, that Clyde uh, did not get protected. He is, is just in a slightly different situation than he was before. Um, an effort has not been made to leave him as he was. Um, okay, you know what? Because we can't get in the heads of these people, let's move on from from that. But I do want to, Stephen, I want to talk about the way redistricting is shaping up around the country for a minute. Um, Politico is keeping track, as, as are any a number of other media organizations, of how redistricting is going. And uh, just yesterday, they published a piece uh, looking at the maps that have been drawn so far and how they stand in terms of being Republican or Democratic-controlled districts. And they came to this conclusion that so far in states around the country, there are 28 districts that have been drawn that are strong Biden districts. That's a gain, they say, of like three since 2020. They say there are only 19 competitive districts. That's a loss of 12 since uh, 2020. And they say there are 68 strong Trump districts, a gain of 14. Now, there are still 320 districts left. But, Stephen, what does that tell us? It's, it's basically what Eric was talking about. We are moving into a time when uh, states are going to be dominated by Republican members of Congress. Yeah, I mean, you look at, uh, well, most states aren't like Georgia, where there's a competitive statewide environment and there's a competitive set of races. But also, you know, most parties probably don't want competitive races where there's a chance they might not win, whether it's Democrats or Republicans. You look at some of the states and the maps that they're proposing drawing. I mean, Democrats are gerrymandering in places like Maryland and Illinois. You have Republicans gerrymandering in places like Ohio. And then you have Georgia, where people were saber rattling about, oh, they're going to get rid of both the 6th and the 7th district. But the data and the demographics and the politics just hasn't come up with that. But what you do see in Georgia's map and other maps are places that really aren't going to change hands much the next decade. They're going to last most of the entire decade. And that shifts the competitive nature of these races to party primaries which are typically lower turnout affairs, lower attention, and kind of lower scrutiny for people that end up representing oftentimes for, you know, six, seven, eight terms. And so it, it, I guess, depending on your theory about competition and whether you want competitive house seats and more scrutiny on, you know, the position in Congress, then you might be feeling kind of bleak about the future of redistricting. 
Uh, Terry, one of the other things that's been noted uh, by any number of observers is that the swing district is rapidly disappearing. There are not many swing districts left, and certainly Georgia is an outstanding example of that. No, that's absolutely right. And I I don't think that's a good thing. I mean, you know, you, it, it's, you know, if you're talking about the math of these districts, and we've seen this in, the legis- in a lot of the legislative districts, too, you know, my own included. My, my district is a very heavily Democratic district. It was more than 70 percent for Biden in the last election. You really just need to have 50 percent plus a couple to be, you know, to be able to 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 keep it, keep it, to keep a majority. And and it is frustrating because I do think that one of the things you risk is voter disengagement from from the process. If you feel like your vote doesn't matter, I think I think you're a lot less likely to make an effort to go out there and vote. And I think that when, when you know, people talk about term, this is sort of my soapbox, people talk about term limits. I think if you want to get rid of long-term incumbents that you might not necessarily like, having more competitive districts is a good way to do that. But it is it is a little concerning. And I also think it's a big risk that the GOP is taking because they are drawing all of these districts kind of based on the Trump numbers. And I think that Trump is still a very big variable in the primaries right now, and I think that he's not necessarily a variable in a good way. Um, Eric, the other thing about having no swing districts, if you can be elected by your base alone, uh, it gives you very little reason to want to compromise, to work across the aisle to solve problems. Uh, So it's a significant issue. Eric? Uh, It is, but I think that, you know, we need to remind ourselves that you know, I, I, I still believe we're a right of center country. And this last election cycle, while Donald Trump was defeated, Republicans actually did quite well or better than expected across the country. And that has continued. I mean, the Virginia race or even how close the New Jersey governor's race was. So I think this uh, cycle, you're going to see Republicans likely take the majority. The question I don't know that I haven't heard anyone say that's not going to happen. The, the debate is how big of a margin uh, is that going to be? And so I just think that, um, you, you know, we're putting we're hanging a lot on the fact that Donald Trump lost. Now, that being said, I think it's going to be up to the Republicans if they want to maintain that. They've got to reach out and understand the demographic shifts of the country. And they've got to reach out to the Latino community and they've got to broaden their base with women and the Asian community. And, you know, I've been involved nationally with an effort to recruit more Republican women uh, to run for Congress. We're at a high watermark in the House. I mean, just, you know, four years ago, there were like 10 or 11 Republican women in the House. Now there's just under 30. And those stories are not being told. And if the Republican Party nationally continues to do that and broaden their base, Put Donald Trump aside. I think that they can maintain the majority moving into the future. Um, before we have to get to a break, uh, uh, Patricia, you referred to it at the beginning of the show. The legislative maps that the uh, that were passed uh, do give, at least on the House side, a little room for Democrats to make gains. I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. I think the maps give uh, Democrats the chance to pick up what six seats in the House, only one on the Senate side, right? Yes, that's right. Um, and uh, because those districts are smaller, um, it is there's just a level of granularity uh, and reality that I think um, Republicans knew they needed to reflect. Um, and that is that, uh, and I know you've talked about this a lot, uh, that the population in South Georgia is just simply evaporating in a lot of those rural counties uh, where Republicans were strongest. And that population is being replaced um, often with different people. Sometimes those same people move to the cities. Uh, but they're being replaced in more urban, um, more urban areas, and uh, those were in the same areas where Democrats tend to do uh, just a lot better. And that's where those uh, districts needed to disappear in the South and then reappear in the metro areas. And so that gives Democrats um, some really important opportunities to start to narrow the balance of power at the state level. Okay, before we break, Terry, are the legislative maps fairer? I think the legislative maps are slightly more representative of Georgian population than the congressional maps. I know looking in Cobb County, that's where two of those sort of opportunity seats are for Democrats. There are two open seats in Cobb County that 
do very much lean Democratic. That reflects Cobb County. Cobb County is a county where every countywide elected official is a Democrat now, which is a major change from previous decades in Cobb County. All right. Again, Steve, Stephen, I want to ask you a quick question. Sam, we'll get to the break, I promise. Uh, Stephen, you did a story uh, with Georgia News Lab in which you analyzed the citizen input about the, the maps. And uh, I think it's fair to say the conclusion you reached is that uh, the public, uh, in a large number, is not very happy with the way the redistricting process has unfolded. Well, most of the people that provided comment, either written or verbal, complained about the process. We looked at the people that talked specifically about district boundary lines, and there were a number of things that did get included. You know, for example, in Tifton, they were split into three before, and they wanted to just be in one house district. That made it through. Montgomery and Toombs County wanted to be kept together in the maps, and lawmakers kept those together. Um, There were examples of people's specific feedback given before and during the process being heard, but by and large, it was few and far between, and most of the specific complaints were about their new lines. A lot of people didn't like Philip Singleton getting drawn into a House district that's more Democratic and that he probably wouldn't win. Brookhaven residents didn't like that only two precincts of the city are split from the rest, and the mayor of Brookhaven can't vote for the state House representative that represents most of the city. But uh, there were some things, mainly in the House map, that people's feedback did get listened to. But for the most part, a lot of it kind of fell on uh, deftly drawn ears. Okay, it's a really interesting report. And uh, Sam Burmistoss, maybe we can put a link to that uh, story up on our social media. I got to get to a break. I'm way late. You've all had so many good things to say. I just wanted to let this conversation go. But now, enough. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more. AJC uh, political reporter and uh, columnist Patricia Murphy, GPB's uh, political reporter Stephen Fowler, Representative Terry Anulowitz, and Eric Tannenblatt uh, join us today. Eric Tannenblatt, uh, Newt Gingrich this week added fuel to the fire about uh, David Perdue challenging Brian Kemp. And uh, he said basically that, that uh, because Brian Kemp has not supported the claims that the election was a fraud here in Georgia, that he is too divisive a figure and he can't get reelected, it's time for David Perdue, essentially, to come to the rescue as the only candidate who can beat Stacey Abrams. What is going on, Eric? Well, I think my good friend Newt Gingrich is uh, probably trying to um, cozy up to his good friend, President Donald Trump. Um, And so that did not surprise me, nor did it surprise me that uh, Randy Evans chimed in right after Newt Gingrich did. So, um, you know, look, I'm sort of puzzled by this whole thing. I find it very bizarre as someone who has spent 30 years building the Republican Party in the state of Georgia. And to think back when the Democrats controlled everything and now Republicans are in the majority to see even talk about challenging an incumbent governor who I would say has been a very good governor and has a great record to run on in good economic times, which really uh, bodes well for an incumbent governor. Uh, it's mind blowing. And, and these are two good men. I mean, I, I thought you know, I think the world of David Perdue and think he was a fantastic senator, worked hard to try and get him reelected and probably more disappointed uh, than, you know, I joined a lot of people who were disappointed when he got defeated. I, I just I just find this to be, um, you know, somewhat curious and disappointing. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that uh, it doesn't happen. Um, Patricia Purdue added to this himself by sending out a message saying that uh, Republican leaders, he didn't mention Kemp by name, but clearly Kemp was one of those Republican leaders uh, who didn't fight hard enough for Donald Trump. So now Purdue is adding even more fuel to the fire. Well, Purdue was on our friend Martha Zoller's radio show earlier this right. week and um, was asked 
specifically about the run for Senate. And he didn't answer the question. He said, but, you know, Martha, this is divided and people are very upset with Republicans from 2020 who caved and didn't do enough. Um, And so to me, the word caved is just an extremely loaded, accusatory, um, potential candidate sounding word. It's just very aggressive. Um, And uh, so I tweeted out those comments um, because I was at the state capitol and nothing else was happening. (laughs) So I tweeted out what uh, he had said to Martha Zoller and Jeff Duncan weighed in. And Jeff Duncan said, um, well, we wouldn't have a divided party if uh, everybody would get on board. And uh, by the way, there's nothing wrong with those elections. I'm paraphrasing. I do not have this tweet in front of me. And then uh, David Perdue very quickly responded to Jeff Duncan and said, okay, Brandon, which is a very Trumpy, very un-Donald Trump, um, excuse me, un-David Perdue. I'm conflating the two. Uh, just a very un-David Perdue uh, tack to take to me. It is very, conf- I, I am in the confused camp of Eric Tannenblatt. I, I don't understand where this is coming from. To me, it doesn't really comport with um, the type of senator and public figure that uh, David Perdue uh, had been up to this point. And so um, we'll see where this goes. But there's an, uh, there's an, an um, enormous amount of friction, um, anxiety, and anticipation about where this is going. Yeah. So, okay, uh, Stephen, this phrase, okay, Brandon, we know, has now been adopted by many Republicans uh, to attack, use against Joe Biden. We don't have to go into the derivation of it. But that's what David Perdue was essentially doing, throwing that at Republican uh, but non-Trumper Jeff Duncan. Stephen, um, it, there was a time when it seemed like this was a fanciful notion that was just really interesting to talk about on a show like ours or to write about it, GPB or, or uh, put on the radio. But it, it feels to me like there's really some momentum developing around a Purdue run for governor. See, I, I still am in the camp that it's a fanciful notion. Uh, <laughs> If you're going to attack Brian Kemp and launch a primary challenge, I think the words that David Perdue used on Martha's show weren't it. I've talked with a lot of people who think that much in the same way that Doug Collins's uh, Senate run ended up torpedoing Kelly Leffler enough that she couldn't win the general election, it seems that David Perdue is playing the role of, of breaking down Brian Kemp and attacking him so that if and when Republicans lose statewide next year, it will be Brian Kemp's fault and not the fault of the party or the candidates they were running or the message they were bringing. It seems a little bit like a setup that, you know, David Perdue doesn't necessarily want to run and win a primary and potentially lose a general election to Stacey Abrams or another Democrat that runs. But if you make Brian Kemp weak enough that you can pin all of this on him if Democrats do end up flipping seats next year. Um, I, I, Terry, I want to get you in, but Eric, you, you, you're the Republican on the panel today, so let's get a final thought from well, you on this. Well, no, I, I, just, I just, you know, want to remind people the tentacles of a, a governor. A, a governor is a very powerful figure in the state. I mean, they have 4,000-plus appointments. Brian Kemp has been endorsed by sheriffs, county commissioners, state legislators. We're about to go into a state legislative session where individual legislators are going to want the governor to support their legislation. The business community, if you have a business in Georgia and you're supporting, you know, Governor Kemp, even if you supported Senator Perdue when he was in the Senate, that doesn't mean all of a sudden you're going to back away from supporting uh, a sitting governor. And so I, I just think that the tentacles of the of the governorship and, as I said before, the climate, this is going to be a good climate for Republicans across the country because it's the an off-year election after electing a Democratic president. And, and so I think that the, whoever the nominee is, and I, I hope it's Brian Kemp, is going to uh, you know, have a good shot of, of getting reelected. I think the only, you know, the people that are you know, probably fueling this are people that are supporters of the former president. And I think the party is a lot more unified. And when President Trump was here a couple of months ago, down in Perry or middle Georgia, where he had the, the rally, when he made the comment about supporting Stacey Abrams, the people in that crowd booed him. 
And and so I think that they may be misreading the support that Governor Kemp has in this state. Um, All right, Terry. So let's look at the other side of the aisle here. How much longer do you believe Stacey Abrams can uh, hold off declaring her intentions for next year? I mean, we all we acknowledge we we, you know, uh, stipulate that she is more famous than anybody else, uh, uh, any other Democrat in Georgia and maybe one of the most famous in the country. We know she can raise untold amounts of money. How much longer do you think it's okay for her to hold off? And are you getting at all anxious as a Democrat about uh, her finally announcing one way or the other? One thing we know, as you mentioned, Stacey Abrams is a powerful fundraiser. She is an indomitable force in Georgia politics and in national politics. And I think because of that, she has the privilege of really not being beholden to whatever timeline anyone else would like to, to keep her to. I imagine that there will be an announcement in the next month or so. I mean, I have absolutely no idea. I have not had any conversations with her or anybody in her camp. But I know that with all the popcorn poppers that were fired up in Democratic kitchens across the state, when this Purdue Kemp thing started really getting fired up and did, I'm going to echo the word that's been used before, truly bizarre, especially on social media, she's in a really great position because you have these Republicans, you have, you know, Brian Kemp, you've got David Perdue. They're if, if there is a primary, it's not a primary that's going to be based on policy. It's not a primary that's going to be based on what is their approach to taxes? What is their approach to public education? Apparently, the way it seems to be going based on David Perdue's conversations with Martha Zoller and others, is it's going to be a conversation that's based on where do you fall on the big lie? You know, if Perdue's talking about how Kemp caved. Caved to what? He caved to the truth. He caved to the fact that the election wasn't stolen. I mean, that's it, it, it's a real cheap and tawdry kind of approach to, again, keep perpetuating the big lie. It's a big risk for Republicans. And again, it puts Stacey Abrams in a tremendous position because, well, you have the Republicans who are debating whether or not the election was stolen. You have a Democrat who's going to be able to just, you know, raise money like the juggernaut that she is. And then you know, actually have policy discussions. All right, Patricia Murphy, I'm going to give you a final word before we have to uh, take a break. But I want to say, you know, Eric Tannenblatt made a comment that's really interesting to me because I remember what he talks about when he was working with Paul Coverdale all those decades ago when there were so few Republicans in the state of Georgia. And and Paul, with the help of people like Eric, really planted a flag that began a Republican movement that took years to take them to the majority, not till 2003. Um, so, it, you know, Patricia, it is fascinating to watch Republicans uh, tear themselves apart right now. Uh, well, it it is fascinating to see at least one man want to tear Governor Brian Kemp apart. I know a lot of Republicans who do not want to have that conversation. They just want somebody who can win. They think it would be easier for Brian Kemp to win if he didn't have to, to deal with this distraction right now. Um, although David Perdue and his camp believe that Brian Kemp cannot win. Um, and it reminds you that the larger a party gets, the longer they've been in power the more likely it is to see these kinds of um, rivalries really start to splinter the party. And the Democrats most certainly have experienced that in their past. They have the um, they have the luxury in some ways of being the minority and you have a single goal and that's to get back in power. I got to get to a break uh, uh, right now uh, because we're running late on the break again. Uh, but when we come back, I happen to know that it, two of the panelists on the show, at least, happen to be coming to us from an area of the city known as Buckhead. We're going to talk about the future of Buckhead <laughs> after these messages. <laughs> Patricia Murphy, yesterday, Republican State Senator Brandon Beach, who lives up in Alpharetta, uh, filed the uh, the legislation, or or is it a, a, a it's it's a uh, well he filed the bill that will uh, allow the residents of Buckhead to decide whether they want to be an independent 
uh, city or not. We've talked about it. You've written about it. Uh, none of the legislators who are supporting this measure are from uh, uh, Buckhead. Uh, the guy, Bill White, who is leading the effort there is a New Yorker who's come here just a couple of years ago. Where is this headed, Patricia? Really? So I think it's going to depend a lot on two things. Um, number one is what Speaker Ralston wants to do with the bill that is brought by legislators from outside of a locality uh, that would really deeply affect what happens inside that city. Um, and the second will be really just the circumstances on the ground in Buckhead. I think if this did move to a referendum, if um, the speaker did let it go to a vote in the legislature, which would put it on a referendum, um, I think it will depend on what it's like to live in Buckhead in 2022. I think a new mayor, um, an easy, easy fix would be to, um, to be in Buckhead, to be a visible presence um, across the city including in Buckhead, um, and to be meeting with residents and um, hearing from them. And that is uh, that has frankly not happened a lot with um, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, so I think that um, whoever wins the mayor's race will first need to start to lobby immediately to preserve the unity of the city, and that's with the legislators, to ask them, would you want someone to come in and introduce the bill to carve away the wealthiest portion of your city or your community if you opposed it? Um, the, the second will be to then start to be, I think, a visible presence across the city to talk about um, solving the city's problems. Um, I think the, the short answer is it's to be determined, Bill. Eric, to what extent do you see this fight as being a partisan fight? That there are that typical that for the most part it is Republicans who are promoting the notion of an independent city, and it may be Democrats who are opposed to it. Is that a fair analysis at all? Well, I, I could see why people would say that, because the supporters of the legislation uh, are all from uh, are all Republicans. And, you know, and as you pointed out, they're not even from uh, Buckhead. But, you know, Buckhead has Republicans. You're, you're talking to one of them right now, and I'm opposed to it. And so it's <laughs> not that all Republicans who live in Buckhead uh, are for cityhood. And I think that up to this point, this has all been about emotion, and people that live in Buckhead don't like the fact that the violent crime rate has gone up, don't like the fact that the city services have declined. And as a result of that, this movement has galvanized, and, and so I get it. However, we're talking about something that's never been done before in the state, de-annexing a portion of a city. You know, these new cities that have been created have been created from unincorporated parts of a county. And this is a very, um, uh, very complicated issue and affects both public finance issues, not just for the city, but it has ramifications for the state. Education issues and the kids that are in public schools, uh, it has uh, ramifications that go far and deep and lawmakers need to really study this. And when they do, I think that they will realize that this is going to require a lot more thought. And while all that's going on, Atlanta is going to get a new mayor. And whoever that new mayor is, is going to have to demonstrate to the community that they are committed. They're going to show up and they're going to address those problems. And the same way I said that this is emotional right now because of the high crime rate, it could become emotional if, it, if people see that the new mayor and the new city council is committed to addressing the problem. And I think that could tamper it down. You know, I, I think going back to the last time we had an attempted de-annexation of part of the city uh, is where I grew up in down in Henry County, where the city of Eagles Landing was going to take away the bulk of the population and the tax base of existing majority black Stockbridge. And that did get a vote over a lot of objections. And the people that lived there voted it down. Uh, there's no guarantee that if the bill passes and if it goes to a vote, that the people of Buckhead, Democrat and Republican and Independent, wouldn't also do the same thing. But I think, you know, as Patricia alluded to, there are other answers and other ways to get towards the same result that don't involve out-of-town uh, lawmakers trying to push through a referendum. I mean, I think you look at what happened with the Gwinnett County 
local redistricting fiasco that happened where there was an attempt to remake the contours of the government. And that has now evolved into a committee that's going to look into school boards and the partisan nature of that and more study time being done. So I think there are probably going to be other things that emerge, both with a new mayor and city council president, but also with some forms of legislation and continued hearings and things that will still address some of the real problems and issues that are happening in Buckhead, but do it in a way that isn't as inflammatory and uh, problematic like the Buckhead cityhood movement. Terry weigh in. Yes, absolutely. My question for my Republican colleagues who support Buckhead City is how come they want Georgia to lose its AAA bond rating? Uh, Stephen mentioned what happened down in Stockbridge with the attempted de-annexation to form the city of Eagles Landing. And one of the big issues there, you know, Capital One held, held a lot of these municipal bonds. They lawyered up fast because the reality is that if, if Buckhead is able to de-annex, if the city of Atlanta is completely financially destabilized. Basically, overnight, every municipal bond, every county bond in the state of Georgia becomes junk. They become worthless because they know will no longer have a guarantee of the collateral that was put there when these bonds were put in place. That is a huge, huge issue. Plus, you have these workaday issues that have yet to be addressed by the Buckhead City folks having to do with public schools, having to do with water. Where is the water going to come from? How, how much is it going to cost? Where are these kids going to go to school? You know, we can't have they can't have their own school district. So I, I think it's a, it has disastrous potential. Terry and Ulowitz, you get the last word on uh, today's show. And my thanks for joining us. Stephen Fowler, Eric Tannenblatt, Patricia Murphy. Uh, by the way, the House did just pass the Biden, what he calls the Build Back Better Act. We'll see where it goes next when it hits the Senate. Um, we did not get to talk about an item that uh, Stephen mentioned, the effort to uh, depoliticize school board elections around the state. We'll take that up on Monday. And we should say that the Ahmad Arbery case, closing arguments, take place on Monday. The case goes to the jury, one of the most watched cases in the country today. And next week, as it unfolds, we'll certainly be looking at it on Political Rewind. So thank you all for being with us on today's show. Uh, panelists, and all of you out there listening to Political Rewind. A good, good week. Lots of really interesting conversations. Um, We're out of time. I'm Bill Nygut. I hope you have a wonderful weekend as you get set for Thanksgiving. And please take care and stay healthy. See you all on Monday.